Losses can be very hard to take, and so can wins. We have a new president of the United States, and in a stunning upset, and despite the best efforts of a number of our politically active students, Dr. Jay Nykirk was not elected. <laughs> he didn't take it well. Upon hearing the news, the venerable political science scholar made his concession call to the president-elect. The call was apparently not picked up. And despite his gallant statesmanship, it was clear that he took this loss personally and with bitterness. He was caught later on a hot mic saying, the system is rigged, big league. Dr. Traup tried to console him by letting him borrow the Geneva Presidential Medal for a day. But as Dr. Traup tried to put the medal over Dr. Nykirk's neck, Dr. Nykirk seized the medal and put it over his own neck. For any of you fans of political and religious history, that will mean something. Later, Dr. Nykirk was seen pounding his shoe on a lectern in an empty classroom, shouting with reference to his political science course, one class to rule them all, one class to find them, one class to bring them in and in the darkness bind them. And an anonymous source tipped us off that as revenge for his loss, Dr. Nykirk plans to personally hand out his poli-sci final exams to each one of his students to look them in the eye and to declare out loud what they already know in their hearts. You shall not pass. <laughs> as funny as I was hoping all of that would be, <laughs> if any of it had actually happened, it wouldn't be any stranger than the things we've seen in the last presidential cycle which has mercifully come to an end. And certainly none of it would have been sadder than anything we've seen. Either way, this race would have concluded there was no way for a victory at the top of the ticket, which was not also a reason to weep. We've seen so much ugliness, vitriol, dishonesty, and disingenuousness from all sides, and both candidates, the campaign is concluded, but for the next four years, what are we in for? And as a Christian institution, and for all of us here personally who identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, what is to be our posture of heart this morning and moving ahead? Well, first, and this is why we sang Psalm 51, we repent. It's always a good day to repent. We have to recognize that based on the standards of God's holy word and the standards to which God holds all people, and political leaders are most often people. No, they're all people. That's a mean thing. I'm sorry. The standards the Lord always told his people to seek whenever they were to appoint leaders. Based on those standards, we have to admit that what happened earlier this morning was in many ways a calamity. If we are to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, 
as we thought about several weeks ago in our time together, if we are to pray for God's name to be hallowed as we've been thinking about the Lord's Prayer throughout the semester and praying it, of course, every week, if we're to pray for God's kingdom to come and for His will to be done, how can we see either of the potential outcomes last evening as not essentially calamitous? When as a nation we were forced to choose between candidates who in their own respective ways and truly with respect to them do their being in God's image, yet they openly boasted about and have spent their lives advocating and advancing so much of what God hates. And so we have to have a deep measure of sadness this morning, whatever our political affiliation. David writes in Psalm 119, verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. We can rightly call this whole presidential election season and the profound national sin which preceded it and gave rise to it. We can call it a disaster and we can call it a calamity. But in the midst of our grief, we must also give thanks. Paul says to the Thessalonians and ultimately the Holy Spirit says to all of us, in all circumstances, give thanks. And we can thank God for one of the consequences of calamity. Because friends, calamity clarifies. Out of calamity comes clarity. You might think, well, things are actually now more confusing than ever. And in some ways, yes, but ultimately, no. Not really. Not when we look through the eyes of our Savior the sight given to us by the Holy Spirit through Scripture. We'll focus our hearts this morning on two points of clarity brought to us out of national calamity. First of all, clarity, um, excuse me, calamity reveals our true loyalties. Calamity reveals our true loyalties. Please hear and handle this question very carefully this morning. Which is the deeper love and loyalty for you this morning? The kingdom of God or the U.S. of A? Now, you might ask, why do they have to be separate? And that's a legitimate question. I'm not saying that they should be ultimately separate, but those affections must fall in line and in order. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And as Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments, He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, in essence, everything that you are. And then comes the second commandment, which is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Dr. Traup was reminding faculty and staff last week, this is what Geneva's motto, Pro Christo et Patria, for Christ and country, really means. It's not for Jesus and America. It's for Jesus and our neighbors. And the neighborhood in which he's placed us as a college is America. One of the things that's become clear in this election cycle 
is that Christians can be very confused about the relationship between America and the kingdom of God. Because sometimes we've equated the two. And if you doubt that, just listen to certain conservatives who unabashedly refer to America as the city shining on a hill to which Jesus refers in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Again, please listen carefully, especially because of how tired we are all for whatever reason. Let me speak in personal terms. I love my country. And when I think of my country, I can't help but think of its military, men and women who risk their lives to carry out national interests. Both my father and my grandfather served in the United States Navy, proudly. They were sailors, both on submarines in their respective eras of service. And I have profound respect for them, for their service, and for those who likewise in our day continue to serve, including a dear friend of mine that I want to tell you about for a few minutes. He's one of the godliest men I've ever known. And he's in the Army Special Forces. He's a Green Beret, and even as we're gathered here this morning, he's out in the field. Several years back, when I first became a pastor in Pittsburgh, I received a call in my office, which was in the basement of my house, and I knew that my friend uh, was deployed overseas in Afghanistan, but I never knew that he'd actually be calling me in my office. So I picked up the phone, and I said brilliantly, hello, and the response was from my friend. Hey, Rut, how you doing? Is this really you? Where are you? He said, I'm in a cave in Afghanistan. (laughs) He wasn't joking. He was in a cave. All the special forces guys get the really cool phones, and these phones work in caves in Afghanistan. And what was happening was that his unit was being hunted by the Taliban. They had heard over radio chatter that the Taliban knew where his unit was, And so he was hiding out with his unit in a cave, and he decided to call his pastor his friend. And so I told him about the rough day that I'd been having. (laughs) My stapler broke. The office chair wasn't high enough to get me to the desk. True travail of the name of Jesus. It was absolutely surreal. He was calling me from a cave in Afghanistan. Now, he made it home. And a few years later, he got out of the army, the U.S. military altogether. He, he would tell me about his time in Afghanistan, how he used to actually sing Psalm 121, I think it was, as he mounted up behind the 50 caliber on the Humvee. Psalm 51 says, I look to the eye, I look to the hills, where does my help come from? Not from there. This is where people who wanted to kill him were. My help comes from the Lord of heaven and earth. But he got out of the service because he was grieved at what was being done to the military. The government telling military chaplains to no longer pray in the name of Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, and yet that same government sending soldiers to fight and perhaps die based on the least we can say is very debatable foreign policy and on soil dedicated to a false god. This was his view. So he got out, but after a few years, he got restless. He couldn't take it anymore. And recently, he re-upped. And he's out there again, as I mentioned, as a medic, 
He's willing to die in the service of his often misguided country, but that's not fundamentally why he's out there. There's a deeper loyalty at play in his soldier's heart. The reason he got back in, as any soldier will understand, is for his fellow soldiers and making sure that they get home alive, even if he doesn't. He knows that God has equipped him to do things that relatively few people on the planet can do or would even try. He hates what's happening to our military, but he loves those soldiers, and he is uniquely gifted to protect them. Calamity clarifies. It is his sense of Christian duty deep in his soul and not fundamentally his sense of patriotism, which drives him to serve our country. He loves the Lord Jesus, and he loves his fellow soldiers, God and neighbor. And yes, he loves our nation, but deeper love guides his service to it. And so must it be for us who know Christ. America may and can come and go. It's the kingdom that counts. And I'm not sure that we as Christians in America are entirely clear on that point. Last night on one of the news channels, one particular anchor kept repeating, we're going to see more evangelical votes than we've seen since 2004. It's the highest evangelical vote in decades. And it wasn't just in the general election that evangelicals threw their support behind someone who openly bragged about violating God's commandments. This goes way back to the primary stage. And it raises the question, what does it even mean anymore, at least for an outside observer, to claim to be a Christian in this country? It's a fair question. What do outside observers think that it means to be a Christian in America? How has the name of our Lord been dragged through the slime of this past political election? Now, that conversation is complex and, and much too complex for this morning. But here's what we can rejoice in. The conversation is happening. And it has needed to for a long time. Based on observing the presidential cycle and the two most popular candidates emerging from the primaries, there's really no biblically-based reason for an outside observer to conclude that America is fundamentally and is operating on principles of Christianity as a nation. In significant ways, at least in terms of pop culture and conventional wisdom, we're post-Christian. But so often in history... That's exactly when Jesus really begins to reveal himself as alive and well. Because Jesus is alive, what dies in an anti-Christian or post-Christian culture is not the gospel. That's not going anywhere except to the rest of the world and to America. What dies is the ways in which we've compromised it. Churches which no longer preach a risen Christ are hemorrhaging members. And those of us who believe that Christ is risen are sobering up to just how quickly and willingly we gave ground on his commands when it came to supporting someone who openly bragged about his defiance of them. We're waking up 
and we're repenting. Again, I know this is a complex conversation and motives are complex for voting one way or the other. I'm not discounting any of that. But this election season has been clear in that it has afforded many uncomfortable but absolutely necessary moments in the history of Christianity in our culture. Moments in which we ask in humble horror, what have we become? And it's a moment very similar to what Isaiah experiences in our text. Isaiah was a prophet to the politicians. He ministered the word of God to various kings in Judah during the days of the divided kingdom, about 700 years or so before Jesus came into the world. And in our passage, Isaiah and the southern kingdom are facing major calamity. A good king had turned evil in his final days, and he and his reign had come to a shameful end. King Uzziah began to reign when he was 16 years old, and he reigned for 52 years. He gets a whole chapter of coverage in 2 Chronicles 26, and that's a pretty rare thing. Verse 4 tells us, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 5, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But toward the end of his life, in his power, he grew proud. The king tried to claim the privileges of the priesthood. He tried to burn incense in the temple. And the Lord struck him with leprosy in the presence of 80 valorous priests. And he died a leper. Now, in the background of all of this, the kingdom faced a terrifying threat from the foreign power of Assyria. And if you want to know what Assyria was like, just imagine ISIS, but now imagine it as an empire. That's Assyria. Assyrian kings would write in their diaries with a chilling, dispassionate tone about how they had burned alive women and children about how they had flayed alive their victims and taken their skin and spread it on their palace walls. This is Assyria, and it was a growing threat encroaching in upon the kingdoms. And so in Isaiah's day, we had a leader whose power got, went way to his head, and the rising threat of ruthless people who serve a false god and slaughter in the most barbaric ways everyone who opposes them as they carve a bloody path across the Middle East. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Here's a question which our hearts, with which our hearts must find familiarity this morning and one which would have burned upon the heart of Isaiah and his people. What do we do in terrifying times in the absence of godly leadership? Well, we look to God Himself, who is always present. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and lifted up on His throne. Just when conditions within the kingdom and outside the kingdom could have been terrifyingly confusing and were, God brings clarity. And the first thing that is stunningly clear to Isaiah the prophet is his own sin and his nation's sin. 
the angels are surrounding God and they're covering their eyes because even in their sinless, blazing glory, the angels cannot handle the full burn of God's holy presence. And Isaiah sees the Lord seated on the throne and he falls before him. He says, woe to me, woe is me. Now, when you say woe in Scripture, think of Jesus pronouncing woes on the cities. God's judgment is coming. Their days are numbered. And Isaiah says that about himself. He says, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. What a pitch-perfect confession of sin for our times, for our nation and with all due respect to him, to our president-elect. Isaiah focuses on words and speech and how corrupt and filthy they can be. And Scripture tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But notice, and here's where we have to learn if we know Christ. Notice that Isaiah puts himself in the front of the line of sinners when it comes to confessing national sin. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And notice also, the Lord hears that confession, and He forgives that humble, contrite heart. And He not only cleanses the prophet, He commissions him to service, to go and to preach His word. Now, the story does not come to a sunny conclusion because if you read on in the chapter, Isaiah's message would not meet good response among God's people. It would harden their hearts. And so Isaiah asks a good question of the Lord, how long do I have to do this? And so that brings us to our final thought this morning about what calamity reveals. It reveals the need for Christian courage. And friends, Christian courage is rooted in the certainty that the Lord is ruling from heaven, not despite our circumstances, but through them. These calamities do not challenge Christ's rule. They prove it. Again, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah sees this vision, or rather that he was given this vision of God's absolute holy reign over the universe. God is not ruling over these calamities in a way that a ref is meant to rule over a basketball game. Let the athletes play until they do something blatantly beyond the lines. God is calling the shots and moving the players not like a puppet master, but with no less mastery. To put it in theological terms, God does not merely allow, He ordains. From the prophecy of Isaiah itself, Isaiah 45, I am the Lord who create darkness and light. I bring prosperity and I create calamity. It is I the Lord who does this, He says. Now, our sins, individually and nationally, are truly our own, and we need to own them. God does not download from heaven our thoughts and our words and our actions and force us into them. We sin because we want to, 
It's ours. We own our sins. And God is truly God. He owns us and the world. And He is moving it all toward its appointed end. There's a lot of mystery in that. But the Holy Spirit makes it clear in Scripture that this is exactly how life is. And the greatest proof is the life and the death and the resurrection experience of Jesus Christ himself. Listen to how Peter puts it, how he puts it all together with a stunning succinctness on the day of Pentecost. Man's free will, God's sovereignty, evil, God using it for good. Listen to how it all comes together as he preaches about the risen Christ. And notice he pulls no punches in his preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Still reading in Acts 2, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? is what we need to ask as a nation. What shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Out of calamity comes clarity. And in our day, the church of Jesus Christ thrives when her, her tear-stained eyes are set clearly and without compromise upon her risen King. And that's happening. It's happening in this country, and it's happening in other countries, in places which, humanly speaking, are so completely closed off to the gospel, to anything to do with the true and living God. Christianity is blooming like spring because Jesus is on the throne. If there is hope for America, if America is to be truly great and truly free, then we must recognize that America has a king. And it's not the man we just elected, nor was it the woman he just defeated. Let us as individuals and as an institution, with humble and contrite hearts eager to serve the living Christ, say as Isaiah did, as we face difficult times ahead. Here am I, Lord. Send me. 
put no confidence in princes or in presidents, friends. But let us all have all confidence and deep joy in the risen King. We're going to pray, and then Matt's going to come, and then we'll close by singing. Let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you at a momentous time in our nation's history, a moment in which some things are so confusing and other things are becoming uncomfortably clear. Forgive us, cleanse us, and please, O God, may we who know you be first in line of confession to repent of our hypocrisies, the way we have misrepresented the name of the living Christ. Cleanse us and then send us forward to speak of him and to minister the tangible touch of his love and mercy. And please use this beloved nation for your honor and for your glory to serve the King of Kings and draw our hearts by your spirit and word to him. We pray in his matchless, holy, eternal name. Amen.